number of years ago in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, there was this lady by the name of Sue Gleason, and she went down to the local Humane Society to find a pet. She was feeling kind of lonely and needed a companion of some kind, and she thought, eh, maybe getting a pet will help. And at first she was thinking maybe a dog or cat, something along that line, until she got to the animal shelter, and she changed her mind. She saw this bird, this parakeet, a parakeet that had this remarkable vocabulary, and and Sue's thinking to herself, you know, here's a pet that I can not only talk to them, they can talk to me. This, you know, we could all day long just have a conversation going on. This might be a lot of fun. So she got the bird and brought him home, and the two of them got really close. And then one day this bird did something that was just beyond incredible. One day the, the parakeet flew over and just perched itself on Sue's shoulder, and then he leaned down and turned his beak and whispered in Sue's ear, 1500 South Oneida Street, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Sue so thought, whoa. Where'd that come from? <laughs> and then the parakeet whispered in her ear again, 1500 South Oneida Street, Green Bay, Wisconsin. So Sue looked up the address and found a phone number, and she made the call. And she found this 79-year-old man by the name of John Strobontz. And she said, Mr. Strobontz, uh, did you have a parakeet? And he, he said, well, yeah, I used to, but he's been gone for a long time. I really miss him. His name is Pootsie. And Sue's thinking to herself, Pootsie, that, that's kind of an unusual name for a bird. So she paused for a moment. She put her hand on the receiver. Mind you, this is back in the days where we had cell phones. So everybody's still using the landline. So she puts her hand on the receiver, looks over the parakeet, and says, Pootsie? And immediately the bird perked up like it recognized its name. Well, Mr. Strobantz went on to explain how, you know, my parakeet's not your typical parakeet. He's a smart bird. He has this uh, incredible vocabulary. Why, he not only knows his address, he knows his phone number, too. And Sue said, phone number two? Really? So once again, she put her hand on the receiver, and she looked over at that parakeet and said, 1500 South Oneida Street. And immediately, the bird flew over, perched on her shoulder, and leaned in and whispered in there. And this time, the bird not only gave the parakeet, not only gave the address, he gave his phone number, area code included. And suddenly, Sue Gleason began to realize this little bird knows a whole lot more than Polly wants a cracker. <laughs> this little bird knows where his home is. As much as the parakeet enjoyed living with Sue, and the two of them got along really well, but as much as he enjoyed living with her, yet he knew his real home was somewhere else. Boy, I hope you realize that, too. I hope you know that this world that we're living in right now is not our final destination, that our real home is somewhere else. You know, one day... You're sitting there in the living room, and you're staring at the aquarium, you're watching that little fish as it's swimming around, and you realize that though that little fish has plenty to eat, and he's got a pretty good, decent-sized bowl of water there to kind of swim around in, yet you notice how that little fish keeps nudging up against the glass. He just keeps nudging up against the sides of the tank because you, you realize that fish realizes that this is not his natural environment. He was made for something more. That little fish was created for the challenge and the freedom of a much larger body of water. Even though that little fish has never actually been in a lake before, yet just instinctively he knows this is not where I belong. I was not made to live inside an aquarium. I was created for something so much more. Well, as human beings, we can sense that too. Even though we got plenty of food to eat and plenty of air to breathe and we got a bunch of friends to keep us company each and every day and we've got a car to drive and a TV to watch and a cruise ship that can take us on the vacation of our dreams. I mean, even though we've got all this stuff, yet deep down inside there's those feelings in our hearts, a kind of homesickness that makes us realize this is not where we belong. This world that we're living in right now, this is not our natural environment. And then that feeling gets even stronger in those days when you kind of bump up against the glass, you, you hit the wall, you, you encounter those frustrations. 
where you have questions that don't seem to have any answers or you encounter mysteries and dilemmas that, that nobody seems to ever be able to resolve or you begin to see how unfair life is and how your sense of justice never seems to get satisfied and deep down inside there's just this feeling of, of disappointment, a sense of unease because so much in this world seems so incomplete. In fact, Sundays, it's just a sense of exasperation because there seems to be all these loose ends that never get tied up, and yet they should. And then one day you open up your Bible and you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, and all of a sudden, man, it begins to click. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says, and God put eternity in our hearts. And now you begin to understand why this present world just seems half-baked, half-finished, half-done. We're not home. And then you turn over to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you read chapters 21 and 22, and you see the kind of home that God has prepared for us. You see the kind of future that he has in mind for us, and you realize, yeah, we belong somewhere else. Remember how the Apostle Paul described it in the latter part of Philippians chapter 1? He said he had this desire to depart and to be with Christ, even though his life with Jesus here in this world was just wonderful and sweet. Yet in spite of all that he had now, it was nothing compared to the life that he would be able to enjoy with Jesus and would be able to enjoy with all the Lord's people there in that new home where the Apostle Paul said everything's going to be better by far. Now stop and think about that. You think about Paul's life here in this world, what he did, what he achieved. Nobody had a more full or fulfilling life than he did. You think about all that he accomplished and the impact that he made, and nobody had a more powerful or purposeful life than the Apostle Paul. Yet in spite of all that he did and all that he had here, Paul says that's nothing compared to what he's going to be able to do and what he's going to be able to accomplish in the next world where everything will be better by far, meaning superior in every possible I would illustrate like this. You remember the day when your daughter came home, your pregnant daughter, and she showed you the ultrasound? Man, you were so excited. You took that picture and you turned it every possible way, trying to make out all the features of this new grandchild. I mean, you were so happy. Here was this living, breathing human being, this actual person who was already beginning to change your life in unexpected ways. So you took that ultrasound image and you put it in the refrigerator. And now every time you came to the door, before you opened the door, you stopped and looked at the picture again. You studied it carefully, trying to get acquainted, better acquainted with this new grandchild. But that ultrasound image is nothing compared to the day when that child was born and you got a chance to hold that little boy in your arms. And now, from that moment on, you had the opportunity to get acquainted with him in ways that you couldn't before. I mean, three years later, he arrives at your house and he hops out of the car seat and he comes running through the door and drops the coat and takes off the shoes and says, Nana, Papa, can I have an ice cream bar? Because the little boy knows once he gets to Grandpa and Grandma's house, he has access to all kinds of treats and, and delights he can't get anywhere else. You see, now that you have this interactive life with that grandchild, you don't look at the ultrasound anymore. That gray image on a black background, man, that's nothing compared to this face-to-face -face life you now share with that little boy. So is the difference between the joy we have right now and the joy we're going to have. The joy that we have right now as we interact with family, as we interact with friends, as we interact with the Lord, it's wonderful. But this joy is nothing compared to the joy that we will have. Remember how the Apostle Paul put it, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, right now it's like we're looking in a mirror, but it's kind of dim and hard to make things out. It's like that black and white static image of the ultrasound. 
But then in the next life, we shall know fully. We're going to be able to interact with families and interact with friends. We're going to be able to know the Lord in a way where every single day throughout all eternity, we will be amazed and delighted at the joy we experience, a joy that will be far greater than anything we have ever had before. Now, just to get some clarity on all of this, let's listen to what Jesus teaches about the new heavens and the new earth. Mark chapter 12. Beginning with verse 18, one day, this, this topic about the new world, the next life, it comes up because the Sadducees, a group of people who say there's no resurrection, no life after death, they come to Jesus, these Sadducees come to Jesus with a question, and they're coming with this question not because they want to learn something, they're coming because they want to prove something. Oh, there's no life after death. They want to ridicule this idea. There's life after death. I mean, life right now is tough enough as it is with all its complications. So to do this life over again in another world is only going to get more complicated. The whole idea is just absurd. And then to prove that, they're going to draw out this obscure law you find way back there in the Old Testament. A law that was rarely even used even in Jesus' day and time. And then they're going to use that law to create this hypothetical situation. Okay, Jesus, what if you had a situation like, like this? Would it not only be difficult to deal with in this life, but boy, by the time you got to the next life, it'd just be impossible to resolve. This whole idea of life after death, it's absurd. Who could believe that? Well, Jesus will quickly dismantle and discredit their argument. And then he'll get down to verse 27. And Jesus will say to the Sadducees, you are badly mistaken. And they're mistaken for two reasons. Number one, they don't know the scriptures. They, they haven't read their Bibles very well. And number two, they underestimate the power of God to change things and change things for the better, to recreate things. Now, here's my concern. My concern is not so much what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, but what he might say to us today. Even though we believe in life after death, I mean, we strongly believe in a life after death. And yet, if Jesus heard some of the ideas we have of what that next life is going to be like, if he heard some of the ideas we had of what heaven is going to be like, would not Jesus have to say to us, you are badly mistaken? How many times in a funeral have you heard a preacher get up and say, well, God took little Johnny home, took little Johnny out of this life, took little Johnny out of this world and brought him to heaven so little Johnny could become one of his angels. We don't become angels in heaven. The Bible never teaches that. Or how many times have you seen a cartoon where heaven is pictured as people with these long flowing uh, white robes and they're floating on a cloud and they're playing harps and they're doing this for all eternity? Where in the world did we get an idea like that? It never came out of the Bible. Or how many times have you heard a preacher get up on the platform after the congregation has been singing their hearts out? I mean, it's just an inspiring song service. The congregation's all ramped up with excitement, and the preacher gets up and says, Wow, that was awesome, wasn't it? i got to tell you something. If you don't like that, you're not going to like heaven because that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. And I'm thinking, really? All eternity, just singing songs and listening to sermons? Heaven's just going to be one long church service? Give me a break. Please understand, I think what we do here on a Sunday morning is special. I can't get by without it. I need it every week. I mean, it's one of the things that just recharges my spiritual batteries. This being together as brothers and sisters of Christ, so precious, so important. But my worship of God here in this life, this world, is not limited to what I do on a Sunday morning. It's not limited to just singing and praying. I worship Him every day of the week. I can worship Him when I'm swimming, when I'm lifting weights, when I'm taking a hike in the woods, when I'm playing a game of Uno with my grandkids. There's all different kinds of ways that I display my love and my affection and my adoration for the Lord. And that's not only true about this life, it'll be true about the life to come. Heaven is not one long church service. 
Or here's one of the ways I messed up, and it's not the first or last time I got things wrong. I mean, every day God just humbles me. And, you know, David, David, when are you ever going to learn? I, I got so much to learn. I get that. But I used to think going to heaven was kind of like the old TV show Star Trek. You know, here's Captain Kirk. He's on one of those planets, and he's fighting battles, and finally he gets everything resolved, and it's time for him to return to the spaceship. And you remember what he said? Beam me up, Scotty. And I used to think that's how it's going to be in the day when I die, that God's going to beam me up and take me out of this world that I will never see again. And then he'll take me a trillion miles away to another place, a better place. It's called heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. Where did I get that impression? Well, I got that impression from a lot of songs that we sing here in church. Do you remember this chorus, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me somewhere from way out there beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel a home in this world anymore. Heaven's way out there beyond the blue on the far fringes of outer space. Not what the Bible teaches. Isn't it interesting in the book of Genesis that when God wants to spend time with Adam and Eve, rather than lifting them up, bringing them up to heaven so they spend time with him in his world? No, every day he came down to walk with them in their world. Or how about the promise that Jesus made in John chapter 14 and verse 23 when he says that anyone who becomes his disciple, here's what's going to happen. My father will love them and we, Jesus meaning the father and Jesus, and we will come to them. Not they come to us, we will come to them and we will make our home with them. Here once again is God coming down to be with us. And then you turn over to the book of Revelation to see God's ultimate plan, chapter 21. What does it say? And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. The new heavens now becoming a part of the new earth because it's God's ultimate desire that he spend eternity with us here in a world that he has recreated specifically for us. Now somebody might say, well, David, what about 2 Peter chapter 3 where the Bible says in this world one day will be destroyed by fire. And then we just automatically assume that means that this planet will just be incinerated and just totally disappear. But is that really what that scripture's teaching? Go back and check it out. Second Peter chapter 3, the earlier part of that chapter, Peter himself said, you know, that's not the first time God's destroyed the world. He did it once before. So that's why you need to take this warning seriously. He's done it before. You need to pay attention. He did it before with a flood. But how exactly did God destroy our world with a flood? So you go back and you read Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13. And God said to Noah and all the people of his day and time, he will destroy them, remove all the evil, and he will destroy the earth. It's pretty plain, isn't it? And yet, when the flood came, he didn't eliminate all people. He spared Noah and his family and brought them onto the ark. And then many days later, once the flood was over and the waters had receded, it was safe for Noah and his family to come out. They stepped back out into what? The old world. An old world now made new. Now washed clean with the waters of the flood where all that was wrong had now been removed. So Peter says it'll be one day. Now this time, instead of a flood with water, this time he'll do it with fire. Once again, God will destroy the world. But how? With a purifying fire where he removes all the corruption, all that is broken, all the chaos, everything that is sinful, like a bar of gold put in the refining fire. He removes all the impurities so that now, once again, the old world is made new. But now, because of Jesus, it's made new in a permanent way. And does not that understanding of 2 Peter chapter 3 fit with what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says, it's not just us. We as human beings who are longing for that new world, longing for the day when our bodies will be redeemed and made new. He says creation itself, this world itself is, is, is groaning right now, like in labor pains, looking for the day of the childbirth. They're looking for the day when this planet will be remade and recreated 
and made into something new. Just a little side note. When you go back there in the book of Genesis and you see how God brought Noah and his family onto the ark to make sure to save and preserve them so they could be a part of that new world, isn't it interesting that also God asked Noah to bring on a male and a female of every kind of bird and a and male and a female of every kind of animal? Because God loves all creatures, people and animals too. And God wanted to make sure when Noah and his family stepped into that new world, that new world would not be devoid of animals either. I am not saying that all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But I am saying I don't think it would be surprising in light of what God's done before. I don't think it would be surprising when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we'll find a lot of animals there as well. Here's what I'm trying to emphasize. Whenever the Bible talks about heaven, it is talking about something that is real, as real as the swing and the apple tree in your backyard. We are talking about an actual physical place. Yes, it's going to be something better. Better by far than anything we've ever seen and experienced before. Definitely. That's why the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when it talks about that new life, it uses the illustration of a seed. You know, you got a seed, here's something small and plain, and yet you put it in the ground, and what happens? And out of that seed doesn't come another seed. No, out of that seed comes this beautiful flower. Or out of that seed comes this large tree, something bigger, better, something more grand and more glorious. So it will be with a new life, the new body, the new world we will have when we step into God's glory. See, just as there's no comparison between that tiny acorn and that huge oak tree, oak tree that it one day becomes, just as there's no comparison between the peach tree and that huge tree loaded with fragrant blossoms and sweet fruit, just as there's no comparison between that ugly caterpillar and that beautiful butterfly, so there's no comparison between the life, the body, the home that we have right now and the life and the body and the home that we will get in glory. So Jesus, wanting to make sure we're not going to be badly mistaken about what that next life is actually going to be like, he shares this teaching. So watch what happens in this interaction with the Pharisees, or Sadducees. Verse 19, they come to Jesus with a question. They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us. And you find this way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, if you want to check it out. He said, did not Moses write for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, and to make sure that this woman doesn't lose her home and doesn't lose her property, to make sure this man's family line, his legacy carries on. He says, now it's the responsibility of that brother. He must marry the widow and raise up offspring for it. It's a good law. God is making sure that nobody in this Israelite community is ever abandoned or left stranded. We need to watch out for one another. A good law. But now on the basis of this law, the Sadducees are going to create this hypothetical situation. Well, Jesus, in light of what was taught back there, let's suppose, verse 20, Let's suppose there were seven brothers. So the first one marries and he dies without leaving any children. So verse 21, the, the brother, the second one in line, he does what he's supposed to do, what the law told him to do. He marries the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. And it was the same with the third. In fact, Jesus, none of the seven are left with any children. Last of all, the woman dies too. So now here's all these people in this new world. Now at the resurrection, in that new life, in that new world, whose wife is she supposed to be? All seven guys were married to her. Whose wife is she supposed to be? See how complicated it gets. There just can't be a life after death. Do you see the problem with their argument? How they're reasoning? The Sadducees are assuming that the next life is going to be just like this life, but it won't. Just like the life of a baby that he experiences when for nine months he's inside his mother's womb, that life is totally different from the life he'll experience once he gets outside the womb. I mean, inside the womb, everything's warm and cozy, everything's safe and secure. Every day, all his needs being provided for by his mother. Life couldn't be any better. 
oh, but listen, that little guy, he has no clue what he's about to experience when he gets outside the womb. The baseball, the swimming, the pizza, the bubble gum, the skateboards, the video games, the, the, the ice cream sundaes, <laughs> whatever. Wow, life's going to be incredible. And you think about that not only in a positive way, you think about it in a negative way. What may have been a problem in the womb is not necessarily going to be a problem once he gets outside the womb, because outside the womb, he's in a different environment, a different world, access to all kinds of resources that he didn't have access to before. What was a problem there is not going to be a problem out here. And that's what Jesus is going to try to explain. Watch how he responds. Verse 24, Jesus responds, he says, are you not an error? You're mistaken. You're mistaken for two reasons. Number one, you really haven't read the scriptures. You haven't heard what the scriptures are saying. You haven't thought about that. And number two, you don't appreciate the power of God, his power to change things and change things for the better. So Jesus says, let's deal with that second one first, the power of God. Can God really recreate things? Yes. Verse 25. When the dead rise and people enter into that new life, they will neither marry nor be given a marriage and they will become like the angels in heaven. Now this is a verse that troubles a lot of Christians. But let's hear what Jesus is actually saying. Let's deal with that second issue first, the angels. He said, David, when we get to heaven, we won't become angels, but it sure sounds like it here. Well, you read the Gospel of Luke, he records this very same conversation. And in that conversation, we hear Jesus saying, you'll be like the angels in this way. You will not die. See, when we get to heaven, we're still human beings. Human beings, angels, are two different kinds of creatures. But we're similar in this way, just as angels never die. Once we get to that new world, death shall be no more. It's just not a part of that world. That threat has been removed. So we're like them in that way. But we're still human beings. You say, but David, what about this thing about marriage? Well, understand, understand what Jesus did not say. He didn't say here, no family, sorry, none of those special, unique exceptionally close relationships that you had in here in this life, sorry, it's not going to be there. He didn't say that. What did Jesus say? Jesus said when we get there, they will neither marry, no new marriages, nor be given in marriage, no new weddings. You see, he's addressing this Leverite law that the Sadducees have brought up because one of the main reasons for marriage in this life was to produce offspring, keep the family line going. But that's not a concern in heaven. Because nobody dies. Everybody lives eternally. So he's just speaking to that particular issue. That's all. Say, yeah, but David, this still kind of bothers me. I had something really special here in this life, and you mean I won't have it in the next? He didn't say that. I love the way that Anthony Stefanano, Anthony, <laughs> I love the way he illustrates it. I can get you the book. I'll show you the page. I'll share it with you, okay? Anyway, he says, imagine a husband and wife, and they're playing a game of tennis. And they're out here in the tennis court. And when they're out in the tennis court, we call them tennis partners. They're out here in the tennis court playing the game of tennis. They're dressed in a certain kind of way. They're using a certain kind of equipment. They're playing this game according to a certain set of rules. They're playing this game in a particular kind of environment with certain kind of boundaries. And while they're out here in the tennis court, they're just having all kinds of fun. They are tennis partners. But when the game's over and they leave the tennis court, they cease to be tennis partners. But once they're off the court, does that mean the relationship's over? Do they hop in separate cars and drive off in different directions? No. No, once they're off the court, they're not tennis partners anymore, but they continue to know and love each other in all kinds of environments, in all kinds of settings, in all kinds of activities, activities by which they're able to know and love one another even in a better way, a richer way, a more intimate way than what they could out here in the tennis court. Life on the tennis court was fun, but it's nothing compared to what they're going to be able to do in these other environments as well. So I contend it'll be for all people and all relationships when we get to that 
new life. What was special here, because of God's power to change things through there, what was special here will be even more special in the next life. Now, verse 26, Jesus said we dealt with the first issue. You underestimate the power of God, his power to change things. But here's the second problem. You don't read the Bible well enough. Notice what he says. He says, uh, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses? And Jesus is talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He just calls that the book of Moses. And he says, here's the part of the book I'm talking about. The, the account that deals with the burning bush. See, in Jesus' day and time, they didn't have chapters and verses. They had scrolls. And how did you know where to look in the scroll? Well, hey, you remember that episode, that day when Moses met God there at the burning bush? Oh, yeah, that's over here in this part of the scroll. That's how they look it up. And Jesus said, you remember what happened that day, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was, like he's been dead and gone, like he's just been asleep in the ground for the past 4,000 years. No, even though he's not a part of this world anymore, he's alive and well in the presence of God, interacting God in a rich and meaningful way. And he has been doing so for thousands of years. I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Notice those distinctive names. They each retain their unique personality. You see, Jesus said he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, it's those last words that just haunt me. I don't want us to be mistaken about this life or the next. You need to know there is a heaven and there is a hell. And when you die, you're going to wind up in one of those two places. And where you wind up is all determined by the choice that you make right now. Do you say, God, your will be done. I want what you want for me. And what does God want for us? He wants to spend eternity with us in a new heavens and a new earth. We're perfect people living a perfect life in a perfect home with a perfect God. That's what he wants. But if you say instead of that, no, instead of your will be done, God, I want my will to be done. I didn't want you to be a part of my life in this world, and I don't want you to be a part of my future either. And so God's going to let you have what you want. And you will wind up in a place that the Bible calls hell. It's called hell because there God totally removes himself. He's completely absent. All his displays of love, all his displays of goodness that we benefit from today, it's not there. There's not anything good left. It's nothing but misery and pain. So Jesus says, please don't be badly mistaken. There's only one of two options, heaven or hell, life with God or life without God. Please choose wisely. Here's the last thing I want you to notice. Those last words, you are badly mistaken. How do you think Jesus spoke those words? I mean, if we were there that day and we were listening to Jesus as he's trying to reason with the Sadducees, as he said those words, do you think he had a sneer in his face? A tone of contempt in his voice. You Sadducees, you're so arrogant. You think you know it all. I've had it with you. And he just treats them with spite. It's not the Jesus I know. Do you not think at the very least that maybe as Jesus is trying to talk to them, he had a look of concern in his face, a note of alarm in his voice. You guys are so far off track. If only you knew that. Hear me out. You've got to hear the truth of what God wants to do for you. Or maybe even that day there was a catch in the throat and a tear in his eye. And a note of sadness in his voice as he tries to plead with the Sadducees. Please know how God loves you and what he wants to be able to do. Please hear me out. See, the Bible's very clear. Matthew chapter 25, hell was designed for the devil and his angels. That's not what God wants for us. What God wants for us is a relationship with him where we can experience eternal happiness with God and glory. That's what he wants. 
And because that's what he wants, that means every single day God's going to do everything he can to encourage us in that direction. Choose life, not death. Choose heaven, not hell. Choose Jesus, not a life without him. I'll finish with this story. Steve Farrar tells about a friend of his, lives up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He said for three years he was a member of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. So for three years he'd been sober. Life was going well, but then he got laid off from work. And it was months and months and months before he could find any kind of employment again. And then just a couple months after getting laid off, his wife had to go into the hospital for major surgery. And this was after the company's insurance had expired. So the bills just kept piling up and the problems kept getting worse. And finally one day he thought, I can't take anymore. I, I can't deal with this. I'm just going to go on an all-night binge. I'm going to get as drunk as I can. So on a Friday, he drove down to Chicago to a place he thought nobody would know him. He checked into a hotel there in the north side of the city, and after securing a room, he went out to find a bar. He found a bar that didn't seem very crowded, sat down on the stool, and he ordered a double bourbon on rocks. And so the bartender said, yes, sir. Grabbed the bottle, began to pour, and then all of a sudden he stopped. He said, you look awfully familiar. Do, do I know you? Oh, yeah, I know who you are. I saw you just three months ago up there in Milwaukee. I went to one of those open AA meetings, and you were one of the speakers that night. Wow, that, that, that talk you gave, it was one of the most inspiring talks, one of the finest talks I've ever heard. I mean, I'm still inspired by it. Thank you so much. Set the bottle down, went down to the other end of the bar to serve another customer. And the man just sat there, stunned, in a state of shock. What just happened? Hands started to tremble, tremble so much he couldn't even pick up the glass. So he reached in his pocket, pulled out the money, put it on the bar, and he walked out because all desire for a drink had disappeared. Now listen, there are over 8,000 bars in the city of Chicago. There's more than 25,000 bartenders. What are the chances that this man would walk into the one bar with a one bartender who would just happen to be working that night, who would just happen to recognize him? Do you think that was a coincidence? I don't think so. I think that was God watching out for this man. I think that was God taking extra special measures to make sure this man did not make a wrong turn with his life. Please hear me. There is nobody who cares more about your eternal well-being than God himself. And every day he's going to do everything he can to encourage you. Choose life, not death. Choose heaven, not hell. Choose Jesus, not a life. The question is this, will you listen? Will you actually listen to the Lord? Will you make a choice for Him? Let's pray. Father, please, please capture our hearts today. Capture our hearts with the love and grace of Jesus. Please, God, don't let us be mistaken in what we think about this life or the next. God. Help us to see and know the truth about Jesus. Help us to see and know the truth of what he has done for us. Let us see and realize and appreciate the life he offers to us. And God, today, make us eager to claim that life. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would work in every one of our hearts today. Stir up within us this compelling desire to want to draw near to you as you seek to draw near to us and make that connection today. God, today... Let every one of us, Christian, non-Christian, let every one of us here today have a taste of heaven as we either enter into a new life with Jesus or today we enter into a deeper and richer life with Jesus. God, give us that taste of glory today. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.